Uh, we've been in a series called Lost and Found. If you have your Bible with you, let me invite you to open with me to Luke chapter 15. Jesus has given three parables in Luke 15. Today we're going to look at the second of the three parables, and then over the next several weeks we're going to look at the third parable. <clears throat> third parable is probably the most famous of, of the parables in that chapter, and that's the parable of the prodigal son or, or the, the child who went astray. And Jesus has given these parables because of the Pharisees and the scribes were looking down at Jesus for who he was spending time with. Jesus was spending time with sinners. And as you learned, hopefully, in our, in our first lesson together, if you were here, you learned just how those Pharisees and scribes really looked down so negatively at just the common people. In fact, they even have a name for them. They called them the people of the land. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, they think that God rejoices when God obliterates one of the people of the land as opposed to God redeeming them. And, and so they had this very twisted and this very backwards understanding of God's joy, what brought God joy, and what God was really all about. And that was really fascinating because the Pharisees and the scribes are the most religious people of their time. Everybody's looking up to the Pharisees and the scribes. And, and you know, really... We today, we, we look at the scribes and the Pharisees kind of as the villains of the story, so to speak. But in their time, that's not how the common people viewed them. They, they looked at them and they said, oh boy, these are the standards that they're holding up. And they know the scriptures and so they must be so close to God. And boy, how can I ever live up to the 614 laws that they have laid down and kind of manufactured? And so the people were very oppressed, really, religiously and spiritually oppressed. And so that's kind of where we're going, where we're headed. Um, this morning we're going to take a look at the second of those three parables, which is about a lost coin. The cause of joy, by the way, inside of your bulletin, if you're not familiar with my strategy or what I do, I, I try to provide something for you just to kind of follow along with me, and you can write some things down that I'll have up on the screen, or just follow along, whatever works best for, for you, but um, we're going to do a couple fill-ins things. The cause of that joy that we're going to read about in the first parable, in the second parable, and on in the third parable is different than the joy that the scribes and the Pharisees thought about. And the cause of God's great joy is all about repentance. The cause of God's great joy is all about repentance. And so I thought this morning, you know, it would be really good for us to define from the scriptures, what does repentance look like? I mean, we have some of these churchy terms, right, that we've used for years, and sometimes I'm a little bit afraid that we use some thoughts and some ideas, or we talk about terms that we really don't know how to define, and so this morning I thought, you know, let's just take a few minutes and let's define what repentance, in, in the eyes of God, what is repentance? Is repentance just saying, I'm sorry, giving an apology? What, from God's eyes, does repentance look like? Repentance there's a couple simple things that we can say about repentance, and then I want to kind of not make it muddy, but I, I want to complicate it. I, I want to I want to define it pretty clearly. Repentance is what happens in you. It's your response as to what God is doing in your heart. You see, God must be at work in your heart for you to truly, to genuinely repent. 
You just cannot manufacture your own repentance. In fact, your repentance is a product of what God is doing in you. Your, your repentance shows that God is already, it's evidence that God is already at work on the inside of you. And specifically, if I can get my clicker to click, repentance is a sincere turning away. Some people talk about repentance as a 360. Well, if you do a 360, you're going what? In the same direction that you were going. Repentance is a 180. It's, it's a turning away from your sin in a turning to obey God's design for your life. So, so genuine repentance in the eyes of God is turning away from something and turning towards something. Repentance is so much different than a mere apology. Have, have you ever been around somebody that they, they apologize and you know they don't mean it? Give you a great example, my four-year-old and my two-year-old. The other day, Evan just went and whooped his sister. Um, not that that ever would happen in, in a family, right? And Evan, go tell Taylor you're sorry. Sorry. Now, my guess is he may have not really meant that. Probably what he was more sorry about is the fact that he was caught rather than a genuine, oh, I can't believe I did that to my sister. Um, it's funny, that's a simple analogy, but at times, do you, know, do you know at times that we handle our sin as we confess it to God in the same way? We say that we're sorry, but we like that sin so much that we're really not that sorry for it. Do, do you know what I mean? We're really not that, because that sin has become a friend to us and because we kind of enjoy that sin. And off, If anybody ever tells you that sin is not fun, they're crazy, right? That's the, that's the attractive, the outside uh, candy coating of sin, right? Uh, I had a little devotion that my parents gave to me on my 16th birthday, um, I was expecting a car. They gave me a biblical devotion. The one's going to last a little bit better. And it, it had a phrase in there. That it's funny how it still sticks in my mind. Sin thrills and then it kills. It fascinates and then it assassinates. Isn't that, there's, this, there's this outside candy coating of sin that is just fascinating. And that's where we have to be spiritually disciplined to say no to sin and to be obedient to God. And so we have to do this thing called forsaking our sins, because forsaking our sins, as we're going to learn this morning, is actually part of genuine biblical repentance. That is what God is wanting from His people. And this mere apology doesn't really reflect biblical. Saying you're sorry to God doesn't always involve a genuine repentant heart. Just because we utter the words, I'm sorry, doesn't mean that we're genuinely repentant. So what is this genuine biblical repentance? Well, genuine biblical repentance involves two things. It involves a turning from sin. Genuine biblical repentance involves a turning away from sin. 
And in fact, let me break that down as to what that looks like when you genuinely turn away from sin. Well, the first thing is, is that because God is working on the inside of you, right? Genuine biblical repentance comes to you because God is already at work within you. There's just this deep, there's this deep sense of sorrow for your sin. You actually mourn your sin. In fact, Jesus taught it in this way in the Sermon on the, about, on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Remember, we talked about what that is. We talked about that not just somebody who's sad that somebody died or something along that way. He's talking about spiritual truths. And the mourning that he is talking about in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 is a spiritual mourning. God has done something in us. He's revealed our sin to us. And on the inside of us, we have a deep sense of sorrow for our sin. Not only our sin nature, but even specific sins that we have committed. When this happens, you both have, um, you have the intellectual acknowledgement of your sin. You have this heartfelt or this uh, emotional acknowledgement of your sin, and then that leads to or contributes to volitional change. In other words, that you begin to choose to not sin because you know what it does, that is to say it's sin and it breaks the heart of God. So once God has revealed that to you and he's wrought sorrow inside of your heart, you're repulsed by that sin, what do you do? Well, genuine biblical repentance or a turning away from sin, always involves confession. Always involves confession. You need to confess to your heavenly Father, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. Not only do you acknowledge that you're a sinner when you first come into your relationship with Jesus Christ, but then when we commit specific sins and God has revealed those specific sins to us, you know what that involves? Not just thinking, oh man, I wish I hadn't done that. It involves a volitional uh, 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 confession. God, I realize and I recognize that this sin is what you died for. And I confess this sin is sin. I acknowledge that you are right. I am wrong. What I have done is disobedient to you. Now listen, there's layers of confession. Depending upon that specific sin, repentance can involve layers of confession. The first one that you need to confess to is your heavenly Father. Because you, are, you have sinned against God initially. Depending on that nature of that sin or whatever that particular sin is, you may not only have to confess that sin to your father, but, you know, your sin could have impacted others in specific ways and in big ways. And what you may need to do is you may need to go to that individual, confess your sin to them, and ask for forgiveness, you, you, that's what the Bible says, that the, God's idea, because for genuine, what is the point of repentance? Have you ever thought about this? What's the point of repentance? It's not to say how lowly we are, but it's to bring healing, spiritual healing and, and um, spiritual connection with God, to restore us in our right relationship with God. Well, if you've sinned against somebody, then you also need to be restored in your relationship with them, Right? 
And so you may need to go to that individual, and you may need to confess your sin to that individual in order that your right relationship with that individual can be restored. And so confession is a crucial part. In fact, in the book of James, it says, confess your sins to one another, that you may be, anybody know what it says? That you may be healed. That's the point of repentance. That's the point of, of, of changing our hearts and changing our minds is so that our relationship with God can be healed. That's what brings God so much great joy here in Luke chapter 15 is that people are having reconciled relationships with Him. Well, after you confess your sin, the next step is to not do it again, right? The next step is to do what? Forsake your sin. What do I mean by forsake your sin? To turn away, to deal with, you know what the best policy for dealing with sin in your life is? Deal with it viciously. Deal with your sin ruthlessly. What do I mean by that? You have got to make sure that you find a way to get it out of your life and get it out as fast as possible. Because at the end of the day, what does sin do? It hinders our relationship with God. It hinders our relationship with others. And so if, if we desire to be a disciple of Jesus, to truly passionately follow after Jesus, then we have to pattern our lives in such a way that, that we can have as close of a relationship with God as possible. And if our desire is to have as close of a relationship as possible, then why in the world would it make sense that we say, oh, I have sin in my life, I'll deal with it next week, right? If your passion is to have a reconciled relationship with Jesus as fast as possible, then you have to deal with that sin viciously and ruthlessly in order to root it out of your life. You have to forsake that sin. Um, we did a video, oh, it's been a while back, um, with Bob Newhart. Do you remember that video? It was the Stop It video. I think that at times, that's how we have to tell ourselves about sin. Stop it! Stop it! Stop sinning. Forsake that sin. Well, and in some cases... There may even be for genuine repentance to turn away from that sin, there may be necessary restitution that needs to be made. The Old Testament is filled, particularly the book of Leviticus, is filled with all kinds of specific laws that if you did something, if you sinned against a neighbor, if you sinned against a family member, it, it gave prescriptions for how you are to go about the process of making restitution. Well, why do you do that? so that you can be reconciled, so that your relationship can be healed, right? If I stole $1,000 from somebody and I went to them and say, oh, boy, I'm genuinely sorry, I confess, I did it, I tell you what, I won't do it again, would that heal the relationship? Well, that might be nice, but you might say, well, what about my 1000 bucks?" Right? So proper restitution may need to be made depending upon the type of sin. If your sin harms others, it's your job to take the necessary steps to make restitution. Why? 
Well, for one, you messed up. And it's your job to work on reconciling and healing that relationship. That's what repentance is all about. Repentance is the process by which you and I are reconciled to others and to God. Okay. So the second component then, second component is turning towards God. So we learn how to turn away from our sin. And in turning away from our sin, we turn towards God. And why do we turn towards God? Because we genuinely believe that God has our best interests in mind. Right? The scripture says, for I have plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and to give you a future, to not harm you. That's God's intentions. That's not prosperity theology. That's what God's intentions are for us. And whether we realize the, the, the blessing of that in this lifetime or in the next, God wants us to follow Him by faith to believe that He has our best interests in mind and not by sight. Because without faith, it's impossible to do what? Please God. So your turning towards God is a step of faith that shows God that you are beginning to trust Him once again. Well, you turn towards God, you say that you believe Him, and then you know what you need to do? You need to obey God. You see, God has given us His plan for how we're to live our lives in the Scriptures, It's our job to mine those truths out as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, and then once we learn them, you know what we need to do? We need to obey them, right? My mom's favorite section, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do you know what it says? We have it on so many of our hallways or on doormats or on placards. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. What's that talking about? Obey God. Obey God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God's prescriptions for living life are better than your own. Can I get an amen? Right? Have you ever, guys, have you ever tried to put something together without looking at the directions? Oh I, love, oh, I love that. And then you come to that place to where you just, well, I don't know what I'm to do next. Why do I have far five parts left over? Got to go back and read the directions. Well, I tried doing it my way. Well, how did that work out? And, and you know, God oftentimes operates in that function. He'll let us do things our own way. And then when we discover, oh my goodness, how messed up is this situation that I'm in, then typically that's when we say, well, it's time to turn to God. Wouldn't it be so much smarter if we just follow the directions to begin with? To kind of navigate the way God wants us to navigate, 
To me, that makes a little bit more sense, but it's, it's fascinating how our human condition puts us in such a place to where a lot of times we want to we wanna operate in our own way. Part of repentance is turning away from sin, but then this other component, you can't just forsake your sin. Now you have to turn towards God. Now you have to choose to obey God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Listen, repentance is incomplete without any of this stuff. The components that I talked about here, if you, try to, if you try to take any of those components away and say, oh, that one's just so hard, and uh, I'm just not going to do that one, you haven't completely repented. Genuine biblical repentance involves all of these components that we've mentioned here this morning. Really, genuine biblical repentance involves change in your life. Not because you have the strong will to make that change, but because God has done something in your heart that has changed you. Does that make sense? You, you, think about this. You can, change, you can change the people that you hang out with. You can change your processes. You can change... Um, you, you can change all the functional and mechanical things around your life, but unless your heart has changed, you haven't changed. Unless your attitude towards God has changed, you haven't changed. Now, from the outside, it may look like that you have changed. But until God does something on the inside, real genuine change hasn't happened. And what's going to happen is if real genuine change hasn't happened because biblical repentance hasn't happened, you're going to be right back into that sin again. You can try to put all the systems and safeguards and all these other things in your life that you want, but until God genuinely does something and changes your heart, you're going to have a propensity to go right back into that sin. Biblical repentance is necessary. Now listen, why do I spend a few minutes to talk about those things? Because that's the repentance that Jesus is talking about in these parables. You see, it's worth knowing what Jesus is talking about so that we can get and so that we can understand the dynamic of the parable. That's, this repentance is what brings God so much great joy. Why does it bring God so much great joy? Because people, when they truly, genuinely repent, are reconciled to God. And of course God is going to celebrate. And the repercussions and the domino effect is as if God the Father on the throne is celebrating, all of heaven is going to be celebrating along with them. The angels in heaven rejoice over repentance. Good stuff, right? Okay, knowing that, let's get back to the parable. Let's go to the second part of the parable. There's only a couple verses there, verses 8, 9, and 10. I'd like to take you there. This morning I had the English Standard Version up on the screen, so if, if your version looks a little bit different, <clears throat> just check your version. So Jesus has given one parable, right? And that parable was about this lost sheep, the sheep that had went astray and the shepherd went to all these extravagant means and came back home and everybody rejoiced. And, and Jesus doesn't stop just by giving them one lesson. He says, hey, let me just tell you this story in another way. Let me, let me give you this principle in another way. Or what woman, 
having ten silver coins. Uh, the silver coins that are spoken about there are the silver coins that I, I have. They're not the exact same coins, but these are the, the silver coins. They're called a Roman denarii, or Roman denarius, singular denarii, plural. Um, in the Greek, these are called drachma. These are uh, the silver coins that Jesus would have been talking about. Tiny, tiny little silver coins, very slender silver coins, what woman, having ten of these types of coins, if she loses one of these coins, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Verse 9, and when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And just so I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who does this repentance that we talked about here this morning. So the silver coins are, in, in the Greek it's called drachma, but the reference was actually, actually to the Roman denarius, which are the coins that I showed you there, um, small slender silver coins. And this woman has only 10 of them. Now, we don't know why she only has 10 of them. Uh, the society during Jesus' time was very different. We, we think about, oh my, only 10 coins. Well, there was bartering involved in that society, and there was, um, you know, just kind of that kind of trade. And, and so having 10 coins, she's a very poor woman if she has only 10 coins. So maybe Jesus is wanting us to see how poor she is. Um, another possibility is this, this could have been her dowry. This, these ten coins could have represented the dowry that she received when she was married. And so this could be kind of her livelihood or her val- representing her own personal value, her own personal worth. Whatever the reason that she has only ten coins, Jesus says she only has ten coins. So she's poor. So she loses one of them. And then just for this illustration, we might be disconnected. Why does she light a lamp? Well, the reason she lights a lamp is because first century homes were very dim. If they had any windows, they would be just a single window, and even then it would be a very, very small rudimentary window. And so whether she lost it at night or at day, even if it was daytime, it wouldn't have had much light coming into the home. So she has to light a lamp. Now, the the floor, depending upon how really poor she was. She, she could have been dirt poor. Have you ever heard of dirt poor? Dirt poor is whenever you have a dirt floor. So it could have been a dirt floor, or it could have been that it would have been like a little bit of a stone floor. In that case, the, the stones could, or the coin could have actually fell between the crevices of the stones. So that's why she needs to get a broom out and sweep. Regardless, she is working hard to find this single coin because it means an awful, awful lot to her, whether it's economic value or sentimental value. She's working very hard. She finds it, and when she finds it, she calls together her female friends. Now, I know that we don't see that here in the English text, but the... to. If you look at the Greek, the the Greek shows us when she calls together her friends and neighbors, those words in Greek are in the feminine form, which tells us that she was calling together her female friends, okay? So get to get, she's calling together her gals that she spends time with. And she says, you got to rejoice with me because I lost this thing and now it's found. Have any of you, I was thinking of this the other day, have any of you ever lost your checkbook? 
Um, how about that lost paycheck? That's happened once or twice at my household. And, and you, you're willing to humble yourself to think, oh, did I put it in the trash can? And you're willing to go through that trash can because you know that that has great value, right? Or have you ever lost some cash and you just, you turn over every rock that you can in order to recover that? Now, imagine that's the kind of pursuit that God pursues sinners with. I've thought about that last week's parable and, and then also this week's parable. That's the kind of passion with which God pursues those of us who are lost. And let me tell you, all of us have been lost at one time or another. And I'm not just talking about geographically lost, I'm talking about spiritually lost. All of us have been lost at one time or another. And, and, and I, I was thinking about God's passion with which He pursues us. The, the extravagant extent to which God went in order to redeem us by sacrificing His only Son like that to me, uh, as, I, as I think about that as a dad, I think that, that's just extravagant grace. That's extravagant love in order for you and I to be redeemed. And the question that came to my mind is a question that I want to throw out there for some of our stuff. How much do we treasure things of eternal value? As we're preparing to think of how do we apply these things? that we've talked about today. How much do I treasure things of eternal value? If I'm willing to go through the trash to find the paycheck that I can't find, that I discover was on the counter the whole time, and then I'm a mess as a result of it, but because at that moment I knew that that paycheck was lost, if I'm willing to go to that extent to find that paycheck, how much more should I be willing to pursue things that have eternal value? Namely, my friends, my friends, my relatives, my associates, and my neighbors. People that are in my sphere of influence that I know that are far from God, and they need Jesus in their life. Am I willing to intentionally try to develop a relationship with them so that they, too, might enjoy eternal salvation? If I can do so much work for things that are temporal, how much more should I be willing and passionate about things that are eternal? I'm personally convicted that my eyes need to be fixed on eternity. Need to be fixed on eternity. And that is so tough in our society, right? Because we live in a monetary society, we live in a busy society. Um, I dread the days that, that my kids grow up to be older than they are to where we're just running here and there and we're just checking schedules just to make sure that we can survive through the day. Parents, right? Been there, done that? And in the midst of those consuming things, how much more, if I'm willing to invest so much into my kid going to softball, how much more should I be willing to invest to my child's eternal, eternal home? 
or, or my child's band investment, or my child's this or that. How much more should I be willing to, to make sacrifices to make sure that my child knows the Scripture of God? Because we tell it, we see in the Scriptures that when we write the Word of God upon our hearts, and we do that, we do that so that we may not do what? According to Psalm 119, sin against Him. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he shall not depart from him, right? It's our job not just to provide the physical things for our children, the tangible things, but the eternal things for our children. How about not just our children, how about our friends? How how about our, our relatives? You see, so often I think that we're caught up in the here and now that we lose sight of that which has eternal value. Because these things are here today and tomorrow, you know what Jesus says? They're thrown into the fire. Uh, it's fascinating just in what I do. I have opportunity to, to meet with people as they are very close to leaving this life as they're getting ready to die. And very, very, very seldom do I hear somebody talk to me about um, more, making more money or providing something for their children tangibly. You know what they're wanting to talk about? You know what they really want to talk about? What they're about to enter into. And that's going to last a whole lot longer than 60, 70, 80, 90 years here on this earth. It lasts, according to the Scriptures, forever. Forever. So many churches today are fighting over the color of the carpet and divisions happen, and you, you ask churches, so, and I, I've, I've been parts of these uh, meeting with pastors, that there's divisions within the church, and you say, well, why is there division? And sometimes they even say, well, we don't know. I can tell you, Satan's attacking the church. He's diverting the attention of the people off of things that are really valuable to things that are just so silly, silly color of the carpet or this or that or the other thing, someone sat in my pew or all those kinds of things, but yet there are so many valuable things that are eternal that we need to have our eyes fixed on. So that gives me kind of, it led me to a next question. What sacrifices am I really willing to make for the sake of the lost? Jesus sacrificed so much for our sake in the, in the parable of Luke 15, the one we looked at last week with the shepherd and this week with the lost coin, do you know what they did? They sacrificed time, they sacrificed work, they sacrificed effort, they sacrificed everything else fell away to the side so that at that moment that they could pursue that which was lost, right? Everything else became small in light of what was lost. You, you never know. The shepherds could have had a, a meal waiting back, a warm meal waiting back for them. And they were excited about going back, you know, or maybe a friend was in town that night that they were hoping to catch up with, and yet there was a lost sheep. And so what took priority, their friend or the lost sheep? The lost sheep. Or the coin, the gal who lost the coin. Maybe she had a, a, a PTA meeting or something that she had planned to go to. And, and you know what took priority? That which was lost. Let me ask you, and it's a convicting question for me, what am I really willing to give up for the sake of the lost? For, for me, it, it rings home. Because we want the rejoicing in our American Christianity. We want the good things, but oftentimes we don't want the cost of the good things. 
The rejoicing in heaven takes great cost at a great price. That price was the life of Jesus Christ for this redemption. And it's fascinating. We live in a microwave society, right? Where oftentimes the way that good things happen is crockpots, right? It takes time. It takes work. It takes effort. He bids us as Bonhoeffer says, to come and die. You you know why? He says, come, follow after me. Take up your, what did he say? Cross and follow me. You know what he's saying? Come follow me. How about dying with me? How How about giving up yourself? Jesus said that those who lose their life for his sake will do what? They'll find it. So we are to lose ourselves for the cost of Christ. The things that that bring God joy, those are the things that should be our continual pursuit. And what is it that we discover in this parable or in this chapter that brings God great joy? Repentance. Sinners who were once destined towards hell, and now their life is being changed. And if we want to be about the business of God, if we want to be about pleasing God, you know what we're to be about? We're to be about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Would it be okay with you to give up your parking space for the cost of Christ. Would it be okay with you to give up the place where you normally sit, because everybody knows that you normally sit there, right? For the cost of Christ. Would it be okay with you to give up everything that you know for the cost of Christ? Would that be okay with you? If not... I don't know if you quite have the passion for the lost that Christ has. Because what, what our job as Christians is, isn't to come here every Sunday. Now listen, I'm not saying that because I don't want to see you next week. I want to see you next week. I expect you to be here next week, right? I'd love for you to come back next week. But that's not what makes you Christian. That's, what not, that's not what lines you up with the passion of God. We think for some reason in our minds that if we come to church then, or if we bring our kids to church, then they're Christianized. That's not how it happens. We, we think that if we bring somebody to church, then they're Christianized, and that's not how it happens. It comes after a continual relational pursuit of God. Now listen, coming to church is a good component but it's not all that there is. Let me ask you uh, uh, another question, and I had to really think about this this week. And so these are questions to me as much as I'm sharing them and throwing them out there to you. And maybe you can think of some other questions that come to your mind as we're talking through this parable. But one of the things that I thought of is, is, am I really willing to begin to pray for God's joy to be made manifest here? Am I really, really wanting to see the thing that brings God joy? And what is it that brings God joy according to Luke 15? Sinners repenting. 
people coming and changing their lives so that they not only forsake their sin, but they obey God and they pursue God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Am, am I really willing to pray that God will begin to do that around us and in our midst? You know, I believe that God has been doing that. In fact, I know God has been doing that as I've had conversations with, with many of you But are we willing to join Christ on His mission? What is His mission? To redeem the lost, according to Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Right? And if we are truly a a gospel-teaching, gospel-preaching, evangelical church that we believe in the Bible, then guess what our mission is going to be? We're going to be about seeking and saving the lost. We know that we don't save the lost. We know that that's all about the business of God. But we know that we need to be a part of what God wants. Does that mean that everything in our lives are going to change? I can't answer those questions. But I have to ask myself, am I willing to do whatever it takes in order that Christ would be exalted and that people will hear the gospel, and that rejoicing will take place in heaven. Am I willing? Paul said, listen, I became all things to all people in order that some might be, you know what? Saved. In order that some might be saved. That's kind of the job of the church of Jesus Christ, is to begin to reach out and identify with all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. And I pray that our heart would be set on the things that make God rejoice. That our heart would rejoice as we begin to see God working in extravagant ways around here. That we would even want more of it because we know, not for numbers sake, but we know that every number has a name. And we know that every name has a relationship, and every relationship it connects with God vertically and people horizontally. We want people to come to Jesus. At least that's my passion. I got to ask you, is it your passion? Because that's the passion that's being talked about in Luke chapter 15. 